0: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in
1: Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, Please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make Spycast better, and you can help.
2: Hi, welcome to Spy Chat. I'm Amanda Olke, Director of Adult Education at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us today. We have two terrific speakers. Uh, My boss, Chris Costa, the Executive Director of the Spy Museum. Have I mentioned that he is in the Commando Hall of Honor, which I think is really cool, and one of my favorite, I guess I always say this, but it's because it's always true, one of my favorite Spy Museum Advisory Board members, Keith Mosbach, who is a geospatial intelligence expert, and he has been wowing us behind the scenes with some of the stuff he's gonna share with us today. Now, before I turn it over, I really want to thank so very much our wonderful sponsor for today's spy chat. That is the EKS group, and in particular, their leadership, Adrian Martinez and Rick Bloomer. Thank you for supporting our programs uh, during this difficult time and for supporting us all the time. So, without further ado, over to Mr. Costa.
3: Amanda, thanks for the great introduction. As always, thank you everybody for supporting Spy Chat. Uh, we've held it virtually while we have temporarily been closed. We're looking forward to reopening soon here at Spy. So keep checking our website. We're really excited about that. Uh, again, this is a special Spy Chat because this is the first time we've ever had sponsorship. So again, I have to say thank you to EKS. And I'm really excited also to work with Keith today so without further ado the first article that i am tracking on intelligence i think is very interesting it's titled germany wants eu to sanction head of russian military intelligence that was a a new york times piece that talked about chancellor merkel's uh, ire really that uh, the russians have waged cyber warfare in particular back in february they attacked the german parliament a cyber attack that is so in retaliation, uh, the Germans are going to invoke a seldom used, actually it's new, a European sanctions tool against the head of Russian military intelligence, as well as the individual hacker that happens to also be on the FBI's most wanted list. So more to follow on that. I just think it's an interesting 21st century story on cyber and a response by a state like German. Germany. The next story that I'm tracking is related to Saudi Arabia. And I find this particularly, particularly interesting. Uh, The title is the former intelligence official was a hero. He's now a target of a brutal campaign by MBS. And I think most folks know that MBS is Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia. Uh, There's a bit of a game of thrones, if you will, going on. But one of the victims of this is arguably, an individual by the name of Al-Jabri. Al-Jabri in the early 2000s really brought Saudi Arabia into the 21st century with their intelligence service, in particular, the the Mabadi. I practice saying that all the time. That is the Saudi Internal Intelligence Service. They are very good and they've been modernized and they work very closely with with Western intelligence services. And individuals at CIA, former luminaries like George Tenet, former DCI, has spoken out against these uh, campaigns as well as Michael Morrell, the former acting deputy of CIA and a great friend of Spy Museum. So we're watching the story closely. Again, this is not surprising. This back and forth has happened for some time as MBS seems to consolidate his power. The problem is um, Al Jabri was a great partner and we wanna make sure we take care of our Western partners. So we'll continue to watch this particular story. On counterintelligence, I'll be brief because this is really a follow-up of what's been happening with the tit for tat with China on a counterintelligence front. What am I talking about? The United States is ready to expel and not approve visas for Chinese students that are linked to military intelligence institutions or academies in China. If I said that right, the implication is about 3,000 Chinese will have their visas denied or canceled or be forced to go back to China. That impacts U.S. universities, but there is a real counterintelligence threat, as we have pointed out in previous programs. Um, the next area, I want to talk about three stories of interest to me and maybe of interest to you related to counterterrorism and terrorism. So the headline is police charge Canadian teenager with terrorism in an alleged incel murder back in February. So what is incel? It stands for involuntary celibate. It's angry young men who come together self-reinforcing, self-radicalizing, online in a ecosystem where they're able to share their frustrations at not being able to develop relationships with women. As a result, about 50 people have been injured or killed since 2014. So this is of interest because of the attack in February and the fact that the Canadians called it an act of terrorism. I have talked to my friends in the RCMP the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and they're tracking this case closely. There are cells and individuals that live in the United States as well as Canada in other other countries as well. So greater scrutiny, greater analysis going forward. The next story I wanna talk about and I transition to Afghanistan. We keep coming back to that because peace and reconciliation uh, hopefully will break out in Afghanistan. Um, But there are some analytical questions about whether the Taliban is cooperating with ISIS on terrorist attacks in Afghanistan. In particular, this is playing out with senior unnamed Afghans that are very concerned that there's cooperation between the two groups to include the attack that took place in a maternity ward not too long ago, where many innocents died, to include um, babies and and, and young mothers. It was a tragic attack. But the question is whether there is cooperation between the Taliban and uh, ISIS. Now they're ideologically removed from each other, but there may be some Taliban that are fleeing to ISIS, not happy with the possibility of peace breaking out. So we'll watch this closely. It's really an analytical judgment question as well as a policy issue moving forward. The other issue I want to talk about, which is very germane, it's very relevant, it's about Antifa, anti-fascist, fascist, fascist, not organization, and that's an important distinction, but a movement, loosely affiliated people that want to provide self-defense, in their words, to uh, protect uh, protesters in the event right-wing extremists show up, as they did in Charlottesville. The question is, is antifa a terrorist organization and the answer is it is not a terror group it is a movement but that said the president when he said he wants to declare antifa a terror group that really translated to labeling which he certainly can label them a terrorist group but it has no real teeth in so far as Focusing resources that you would on a foreign terrorist group. But what it does translate to is really heightening the prioritization, having joint terrorism task forces in the United States look and investigate Antifa to make sure they're not mobilizing for violence. Pause. I also have to talk about far right extremists because they are, in fact, mobilizing for violence as well to affect protests, and they have attacked federal officers since uh, the killing of george floyd they have attacked uh, federal officers on the west coast and i believe a highway patrolman the point is extremists on the both both sides of this spectrum will take advantage of protests the question is how will the united states handle that from a policy standpoint if there's no nexus with a foreign terrorist organization overseas, really what that means is the FBI and Homeland Security will continue to make sure that uh, violent actors are not moving to a protest really to create violence to sow more disunity. So that story will continue to play out. There was an excellent op-ed that was published today about the hysteria surrounding, uh, surrounding antifa it was published i think in the new york times all right transitioning away from terrorism i like to talk about wrongful detentions so i'd like to talk about two cases a good news story the release of michael r white he's a former sailor he's been held by the iranian regime for two years in my mind it was a wrongful detention it was another westerner that was rolled up as a bargaining chip that's the way iran's seems to behave um, hold somebody try to negotiate and of course we don't have direct diplomatic ties to iran we the united states so countries like um, sweden perhaps or switzerland are involved as interlocutors i think switzerland most recently all of that said he was released after two years because of diplomatic pressure and he was recently released Some of the united states held uh, on some um, charges related to uh, probably violating sanctions, he was returned to Iran. So we continue to put, and again, the United States diplomatic pressure on Iran. They continue to behave in a malign fashion. There are three other hostages we want released from the United, the United States wants to release, in other Westerners. Um, Transitioning to another wrongful detention. So this is a fascinating case. I've spoken about it uh, to the media uh, two years ago and a couple times since. The case of Paul Whalen, a former Marine who went to a wedding in Russia and he was passed a, a thumb drive on that thumb drive. Purportedly there was classified information. Ergo, he was considered a spy for two years. He has been held and finally he was sentenced to a, breathtaking 16 years uh, in the Russian penal system. Now, in my opinion, this is an analytical judgment. Uh, Whalen has had no relationship at all with the U.S. intelligence community, and this is a uh, provocation by the Russians. They're very adept at that, and they'll probably hold out for some kind of trade. Again, it's a part of their malign diplomacy i saw some remarks from ambassador john sullivan he is very unhappy and he's a fighter i'm glad he is the u.s ambassador to russia okay the the final two stories i want to talk about in brief i think are are fascinating one is uh, the palestinian authority president abbas recently he has quietly apparently terminated his intelligence sharing with israelis as well as the united states and this is really important i had an opportunity to meet and talk to a boss a couple of years ago and it was very important to reinforce the the um, the priority of ensuring that the palestinian authority continue to share information on terrorism as it related to israeli security as it related to palestinian security if those relationships are curtailed i think it puts israelis at risk and it certainly puts palestinians at risk if you're wondering why this is related to uh, apparently some diplomatic decisions domestic decisions in israel to annex uh, more land in the west bank so watch that story it'll play out in the future. Um, And finally, I'm not gonna say a lot about it. This isn't a book endorsement, but I highly recommend Uh, that you follow the case of John Bolton. DOJ is trying to stop his memoir that apparently has classified information in it. His editors uh, deny that. It's a very interesting case of First Amendment rights and uh, the importance of going through a process of making sure you do not have classified information. Whether it's been politicized by, uh, by the White House or not, that's part of the story, continue to watch it develop. It'll be interesting to read some of Bolton's insights, but really the largest story for me in the Spy Museum is to watch the debate, the back and forth, while the Department of Justice tries to, uh, you know, do a cease and desist order, so the book is not um, sold widely next week. And finally, I just wanna offer that normally I'm reading an intelligence book, This month, I've taken a break, which is very rare. I'm reading a book on Lyndon Johnson titled The Tragedy of Lyndon Johnson, appropriately from my dad's library. I'm dusting it off and reading it about really the time of civil rights, the 1960s, and uh, domestically how the United States was dealing with all kinds of change. I think it's worth taking a break every once in a while, and I think you can find that book. It's been reprinted, it's a classic. Anyway. Without further ado, it's really important that we hear from Keith, because he has a lot to say, and we can't wait to hear your questions. Thanks, Keith. Thanks so much, Chris. And uh, Amanda, thank
1: you for the very kind words. Uh, you're, you're always able to uh, put such a positive light on things. Uh, I'm really privileged to have the opportunity to be part of the team, part of the family at the International Spy Museum. Uh, I learned so many things from my colleagues there, and uh, it's been a great journey uh, into the new facility, and while certainly uh, been interrupted here necessarily by uh, COVID-19 precautions, as things begin to open up and people can get in to see that, that fantastic collection in that um, superb facility, uh, those who have seen the Spy Museum before I think will be excited. Uh, those who have never been will certainly uh, be excited. Uh, I hold down a challenge uh, in my engagement with the Spy Museum in that uh, there's lots of espionage talked about at the Spy Museum, and I always like to remind them that spying goes far beyond that, and it gets into my area uh, of of interest and my background, which is geospatial intelligence, which includes remote sensing and location information, uh, data analytics and data visualization sort of all wrapped up. So I'm going to take a whirlwind tour here, uh, uh, as Chris did, Through a bunch of things that are going on in the geospatial intelligence community uh, that you might not have heard of, uh, but they're happening. They're happening right now. Uh, So first is a bunch of launches. The SpaceX crewed launch uh, for NASA recently got a lot of attention. Uh, The eyes of the world were on that launch. Uh, U.S. getting back into space with its own uh, rocket was very exciting. Uh, What most people probably haven't paid much attention to is uh, the 13th of June, the National Reconnaissance Office, part of the intelligence community that builds and operates the spy satellites, if you will, uh, launched out of New Zealand on a rocket uh, as part of a ride share. And that's actually that's actually a thing on launches where several satellites will go up on one rocket uh, and kind of go do their own thing. So uh, you have the National Reconnaissance Office launching a satellite out of New Zealand, not something many of us in our community would have thought possible just a few years ago. Uh, on the, that, was, that was June 13th. On the 15th, Um, SpaceX, a Falcon 9 uh, rocket as well, went up with 58 Starlink satellites, uh, part of Elon Musk's communications uh, system in space. I think they've got about uh, 540 uh, satellites up there now. They normally, on the Falcon 9, would go up with 60. This time they went up with 58 because they took three SkySat satellites from Planet, which is a company that has a number of satellites on orbit, probably somewhere in in the area of 120 to 130 at this point. So the SkySat uh, satellite's very, very uh, capable. They get down to 50 centimeter spatial resolution, but what's also very exciting that people don't talk about too much is temporal resolution, which is how often are they able to visit uh, the same point on the Earth? Uh, so you'll have a uh, 50 centimeter resolution from the SkySat constellation alone by later this year when they put up their full, uh, they, they could get up to around 21 in that constellation. Uh, you know, revisit as many as 12 times a day in a lot of the major populated areas of the Earth. Uh, Black Sky, another remote sensing company, will launch two satellites on the 24th of June, um, also on a Starlink launch, uh, and they plan four more this year uh, launching out of India, ultimately with about 16 satellites. Uh, and then, of course, ISI is a Finnish uh, remote sensing company with synthetic aperture radar, we're using radar imaging from space uh, they put up their two most recent satellites uh, just about a year ago uh, and they will uh, they are doing synthetic aperture radar radar imaging through clouds at night uh, as as uh, as with 25 centimeter resolution so pretty exciting stuff so lots of things going on in space besides just nasa crewed launches uh, the next one i want to talk about something i, I just saw yesterday uh, and this is a great Exemplar of open source intelligence, less so necessarily about geospatial intelligence, although there's a little bit of that in here. But this is a great exemplar of what we call open source intelligence. So, uh, a young woman uh, threw a Molotov cocktail into a police car in Philadelphia. There were images taken of her, both cell phone uh, images and others. And the police were able to identify her tattoo uh, pretty clearly and a t shirt that she had that was rather unique. They were able to trace that t shirt to a store on Etsy. Once they found the store on Etsy that sold that t-shirt, they happened to notice a review uh, by a woman who lived near Philadelphia. They took that uh, name of that person who did the review and they went to LinkedIn. They also uh, looked on Instagram and some things on on Vimeo for the original uh, identification. Uh, Ultimately took that to LinkedIn, identified her place of business, went to that website, saw pictures of her on the website uh, and very clearly showing off her tattoo and that allowed her, uh, them, of course, to identify her positively and then uh, go and arrest her. Ultimately, I think she was arrested by the FBI. So think about that chain of events uh, that her tattoo and her T-shirt uh, were what ultimately betrayed her. Uh, and obviously, she faces a number of legal problems. Interesting, her attorney has already pointed out that he has grave concerns about, um, about privacy uh, with respect to how, how his client was tracked down and arrested. Uh, you know and, and many would suggest those are all open sources. So, you know I've, I've got five children between the ages of eighteen and twenty six and uh, I think they would refer to this perhaps as just common internet stalking of someone they might be interested in or curious about. but we'll we'll see what happens there. Uh, some of you might have heard uh, moving on about a, a story a few weeks ago about uh, some slides that were uh, apparently leaked unclassified slides pointing out, uh, sort of some, what they felt to be a rather damning indictment of uh, open-source intelligence collection against a, a lab in Wuhan, uh, saying that it made clear that that uh, the virus originated out of that lab, uh, calling out uh, sometimes uh, where there were uh, odd absence of cars or roadblocks in the area. Uh, oh, well, immediately upon this being uh, released and to some fanfare in the press, uh, true professional open-source analysts were able to take a look at it and start to systematically debunk each one of the claims using imagery from Maxar satellites and Airbus satellites, as well as cell phone uh, ping location uh, data and activity data. Uh, You know, there were some basic mistakes in the assumptions in these slides in this intelligence analysis. Uh, not understanding the impact of a Chinese holiday, for instance, not understanding that roadblocks were not anything nefarious, but rather just an indicator of construction, right? which is something we all deal with here during road construction. Uh, So systematically, uh, experts like Jeffrey Lewis at the uh, Center for Nonproliferation Studies, uh, who uh, spends a lot of his time looking at North Korean and other nuclear issues, Iranian nuclear issues, uh, was able to kind of go through this with his skill set and his analysts, uh, and kind of take it apart. So uh, it, it is uh, it is a dual edge here. Uh, people made an intelligence call based off a bunch of open source analysis, and then had that open source analysis shredded by other analysts. So very interesting time there. Uh, something else you may not have heard of. Uh, you may some of you may recall the the uh, in January of 2018 a discussion about Strava, and uh, which is a um, a fitness app that has very precise location data, allowing people to uh, take a look at running routes. Maybe when they get to a city uh, where they're not familiar, they're able to track their times uh, over time around the same routes, measure them very precisely, et cetera. So great fitness tool if you can have that level of accuracy. Uh, The problem was it was being shared very widely uh, and they actually found uh, US military forces running around the perimeters of heretofore undisclosed locations in the Middle East uh, and, and those things were being uploaded and tracked. Uh, and, and so not only were they identified as US military personnel at a place where we didn't uh, ever acknowledge having them, uh, but they were tracing the fence line of the facility very clearly by trying to get the most uh, area in for, for their daily runs. Well, uh, it's happened again, and that is uh, the untapped beer app uh, also has location, and people are drinking beer and checking in and very proud of the craft beer uh, that they've added to their achievements, but they're also tied to location and to the lo- location company uh, Foursquare, uh, which has uh, been fostered uh, out of a formerly a check-in app itself into a very powerful marketing uh, and uh, retail sales location tool. So uh, the untapped beer app has now become a security problem for the US military and intelligence folks. Um, Ramstein Air Base alone uh, showed 600 unique users uh, logging over 2600 beers in just a very short period. So uh, both the Air Force holding its own there, but those of us know that uh, people transiting of all services and all types of government agencies are transiting through there. So the, the Air Force shouldn't, shouldn't uh, hold all the credit uh, or blame, depending on how you're thinking about it. So the untapped beer app uh, has, has become a problem uh, from an operational security or OPSEC perspective. Uh, Lots of discussion in the press, uh, moving on here to surveillance of protesters, and that could be uh, video, that could be from surveillance cameras, that could be ground video, that could be uh, the automated license plate readers, Um, that could be um, individual body cameras of officers who are at the protest, and where is all this data going? We also have seen evidence that the Customs and Border uh, uh, Protection folks are flying uh, drones uh, over areas in the United States far away from borders. So what, what does this say uh, about how we have managed to regulate uh, the types of surveillance that, are, that uh, are available to our law enforcement professionals? Where Where is it justified? Where are they uh, using that uh, surveillance power? Uh, it also gets to cell phone tracking and things of that nature. Interesting uh, warrants that were issued during the course of the protests were geo-fenced warrants, so rather than saying they wanted to look at a specific person or activity, they were able to get a warrant that said, we want to be able to surveil a very specific area and that geo fence be drawn around it. And it could be rather large, uh, which is, you know, not something that, uh, warrants have traditionally been known for, for being so broad. So I think it's interesting, the industries that connect in and around this have talked about self regulation for some time. Um, IBM, Amazon, Microsoft, for instance, all recently announced that they would stop providing their facial recognition technologies, at least in the near term, to law enforcement, pending some ability to have a discussion about this, the technologies uh, and, and where it's headed. So the last thing I'd like to to address, as an intelligence professional, I can certainly get a little concerned uh, when, uh, although as an intelligence professional, I'm very used to the, the, the uh the phrase that we have in our community, which is there are only two types of operations, uh, operational successes and intelligence failures. right? And we learn that early on in our intelligence careers. Uh, but, but once again, I've seen headlines over the last few days about uh, the intelligence failure of coronavirus. So i just like to point out that in, in November, I'm going to read you some lines that were written by the Intelligence Committee on, on the 15th of November uh, and see if these sound you know, familiar. The emergence of a novel, highly transmissible and virulent human respiratory illness for which there is no adequate countermeasures, there are no adequate countermeasures could initiate a global pandemic. Uh, Experts consider highly pathogenic avian influenza strains as likely candidates, but other pathogens such as SARS coronavirus uh, also have this potential. If a pandemic disease does emerge, it will probably first occur in an area marked by high population, Uh, density and close association between humans and animals, such as uh, many areas of China. Under such a scenario, inadequate health monitoring capability within the nation of origin probably would prevent an early identification of the disease. Despite limits imposed on international travel, travelers with mild symptoms or who were in fact asymptomatic could carry the disease to other continents. The absence of an effective vaccine and near universal lack of immunity would render populations vulnerable to infection. So I'd say by any measure, that would suggest that the intelligence community did in fact anticipate this and did in fact uh, alert, not just decision makers, but the public. This was in an unclassified document. And I know I mentioned that it was written on the 15th of November, but I think I may have forgotten to mention it was written on the 15th of November, 2008. So for people who would like to suggest that the intelligence community didn't see this coming and didn't tell people it was happening, uh, I'd suggest that they go see the global trends 2025 report by the National Intelligence Council uh, that was issued on the 15th of November uh, 2008, uh, page 75. So that's all I've got pending uh, getting to the question and answers.
0: We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Hi,
2: where is where is our Mr. Costa? There he is. Well, that I love that was a very uh, wonderful way to end, Keith. Um, a little bit of time travel back to a different decade. Um, and I will jump right into the questions unless you have either of you have any further comments. Um, this is a very specific question I wonder uh what exactly they want to know but um can you discuss what is happening in the global geospatial intel research building in white sands
1: yeah so absolutely not but i'd love to hear some new questions
2: (laughs) exactly um uh this one's. definitely can you or will you answer chris
3: no i i i'm gonna punt on that one
2: Okay, well, I, I will as well then. I'll follow the proper lead. Um, uh, an interest in, with all the satellites being launched and then perhaps left, it, are there concerns about space debris? Um, are, there, are there agreements in place about handling that and managing that? And um, if so, could you let us know? And something fell down in my house, my apologies.
1: So make sure that's not a piece of space debris, perhaps. It is okay. orbit. Oh
2: my gosh, it is.
1: Um, in any event, yes. Uh, there, there are a number of international treaties and agreements that, that uh, um, create the opportunity for very responsible uh, activities in space. Uh, it was easier many years ago when there were only a few players to come together under international treaties and have agreements on the types of things that one would do to make sure that they were they were re- responsible citizens in space. That is, um, you know, carrying enough fuel on your spacecraft and maintaining a reserve so that when you have reached the end of life, if you are in a low Earth orbit, you are able to successfully maneuver that out of orbit, you know, in an area where it will uh, burn up in the atmosphere. Uh, If you are in a higher orbit, uh, there's a regime where you use that remaining fuel to fire your engines and go straight up, essentially, uh, into an orbit that will will not decay uh, in in any of our lifetimes or our children's or their children's. So uh, we kind of just, in that case, we send them way, way up. Um, But certainly, uh, both, um, there have been examples of uh, the U.S. many years ago, but more recently, China and India, Conducting any satellite tests uh, in low Earth orbit, well, and, and beyond, and, and the Russians as well. And, and th- this has left uh, tremendous debris fields in low Earth orbit. So, you know, let's put things in perspective. The International Space Station is in low Earth orbit. Uh, it is traveling at about 17,500 miles per hour. Uh, a, a penny, a, a bolt, a piece of debris of that size traveling at that same speed. Uh, hitting the International Space Station could be catastrophic, and I think we saw the Sandra Bullock, uh, George Clooney movie uh, some years ago uh, that that, uh, dramatized dramatized some of that. So, yes, there is a way to be a responsible citizen in space, there is a way to anticipate and uh, um, uh, adhere to international space treaties and agreements, but not everybody does that, and as more uh, entrants uh, join the space arena, uh, some don't necessarily want to spend the money uh, required to be able to be that, those responsible citizens. Uh, and then pressure has to be applied by other countries to try and get them to do that. But again, the most dangerous uh, issue with respect to space debris at this point uh, truly has been those anti-satellite tests that have created these debris uh, fields uh, that have to be watched very closely, monitored very closely. And in fact, places like the International Space Station and other satellites are maneuvered. Uh, on occasion when a conjunction is predicted,
2: um, this one this incredibly timely question, are we able to use um any of our tools to verify the seriousness of the clash that's happening right now between um, China and India?
1: Absolutely. It's a wonderful question. i and I was looking at some open source imagery this morning. Uh, it's very clear to see some of the, the Chinese movements. These, are, these are, are classical sort of Cold War imagery exemplars. We spent a lot of time over the last 20 years hunting people and single vehicles and having to, to manage that as intelligence problems. Uh, Chris and I come fra- from an era where tracking large Soviet uh, then Soviet formations and the Chinese uh, move in a similar manner. So it's quite easy to track their logistics bases Uh, to track movements uh, of units, to identify those units, and to a certain extent do that on the Indian side as well. And given the commercial imagery that's available now, and both the spatial and temporal resolution uh, that I talked about earlier, uh, there there are any number of people at universities, at think tanks, and others who are tracking this very clearly, and I'd say a quick web search, you'd be able to find uh, some very clear pictures of that activity.
3: If I could jump in there also to complement that kind of collection uh, that Keith just talked about. Of course, you have you know, diplomatic uh, channels. You also have clandestine human. There are sources out there from many countries that are reporting on this because we should remember that uh, China and India went to war in 1962. So flash forward to 2020. Both of those countries are nuclear powers. So this would be a high priority for the U.S. intelligence community and just the world community to understand how serious is this this, uh, border dispute? Is it going to escalate? And China, candidly, is under a lot of pressure right now in Hong Kong for failures, in quotes, on the pandemic. So uh, again, this is a very contentious border but we have multiple ends to include open source intelligence. So this is an important requirement. We would yeah. hold, hold all stops,
1: right, Keith? Thanks, Chris. I, one, one more thing, Amanda. I, I sort of have open source on the brain here. Um, certainly, uh, classified uh, sources absolutely all work. The power is when it all works together. Uh, it's, uh, you know, one of the things I've done in my background is uh, it's called intelligence integration or intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance integration The idea is, what are we hearing from our signals intelligence intercepts? What are we able to get in the cyber realm? Uh, Chris's points about uh, diplomatic and uh, clandestine human sources on the ground, as well as taking uh, a look through our very exquisite geospatial intelligence tools that we have available uh, and putting it all together to create a picture that allows uh, people, decision makers in, in the White House, to anticipate uh, what's going on, and not just see it as a history lesson, and also to provide it to our forces in the region and our commanders in the region, so that they understand w- what's happening and what what will probably happen uh, based on 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 analytic um, the analytic picture.
2: Well, referencing Osen here, one of the questions harkens back to you know untapped beer. is there any way um, you know for the military to uh, kind of massage this and, and get less information flowing out there on, um, on OSINT channels?
1: Yeah, this is tough. Um, all the military services have briefings that, uh, interestingly, it's sort of a collaboration between their public affairs folks and their intelligence, counterintelligence folks to make uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines aware of these myriad devices that they now carry and what the footprint looks like, what uh, sometimes referred to as digital dust. Uh, that they're leaving where they go. Uh, there's a, you know, a, a famous uh, incident that was really sort of seminal in, in this in this movement uh, to 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 bring this under control. Uh, when a uh, three, I think it was three or four brand new, very advanced Apache helicopters were brought into a base, uh, an operating base in Iraq, and of course the soldiers were intensely proud of getting this uh, fantastic piece of equipment and took pictures and posted it to the web, and those pictures had embedded location information, and those aircraft were destroyed by enemy fire pretty quickly thereafter, uh, because we actually targeted it uh, functionally. Those soldiers targeted those aircraft themselves uh, by sending out imagery with uh, embedded location data. So yeah, there are lots of efforts to to, um, educate uh, folks in the military, educate folks in the intelligence community, uh, about the the dangers of this trail that they're leaving, but the reality is it's a it is a tough a tough challenge uh, in an era where we're all so connected by so many different devices
2: um this is i'm going to lump some things together that shouldn't necessarily be lumped together, but I think it makes sense as a broad discussion point um so bear with me. Um, People are asking about Antifa and what makes it seem like a terrorist group as opposed to just an anarchist movement. And then thinking about um, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, which has now become uh, the Capitol Hill Occupational Protest Chop. How, um, you know, what is the chance of that becoming? Terrorists, this is a question from the audience. So I thought those kind of went together in terms of domestic issues,
3: if you will. So I can take a stab at it and then hear from Keith as well, his perspective. So I'll offer this. I was actually at the White House working on counterterrorism during Charlottesville. So knowing this was a domestic situation, the best I could do was work, you know, uh, almost all night, just monitoring through Uh, Homeland Security and FBI, any concerns that agitators were coming in to commit violence, political violence, motivated and mobilized because of their their ideology. And in this case, in many cases, in Charlottesville, it was about far-right activists. And of course, a far-right activist, or however you define him, a white supremacist that was motivated to kill an innocent protester executed that. And, uh, Subsequently, I think, is uh, is if not going to receive the death penalty for that, certainly will spend the rest of his life in jail. All of that said, the roles and responsibilities for policymakers is to keep, in that case, to keep leadership informed. Similarly with Antifa, so antifa as well as far right as i i probably didn't go as deep as i would like to uh, but i'll be brief here antifa again is a movement it's not a terrorist organization The president can label it and say i want to designate a terrorist organization other right-wing organizations, and there's a history of left-wing violent organizations that have been classified terrorists by the nature of what they do uh, as far as property damage goes and political violence. But for all intents and purposes, those groups in the United States are handled like any other criminal element, with the exception of joint terrorism task forces might assign officers to investigate those crimes. But in the case of Antifa, in the case of far-right extremists in the United States, we have to be mindful, and I say this all the time, as repugnant as it is, it's not against the law to be a member of Antifa. It's not against the law to be a white supremacist or a neo-Nazi. So they have First Amendment rights. So investigators have to approach it cautiously. Now that said, and I'll finish up by this, the administration has recently said that the Russian Imperial Movement, a white supremacist organization, is essentially a foreign terrorist organization. This is very, very important. And it didn't happen while I was at the White House. It happened afterwards, but I applaud it because what it means is this group that has training camps in Russia, They also have an online presence worldwide. They also sow disunity on the internet and have a a radical right ideology of hate. But at the same time, they want to mobilize for violence. They have been declared a terrorist organization. They will be sanctioned and they will be shut down over time because we'll use diplomatic intelligence, probably not military, but certainly economic sanctions will be applied against that problem. So that just gives you a sense. But in insofar as Antifa goes, I wanna finish on this point. It is not an organization with a hierarchy. It is a movement, loosely affiliated people. In some cases, they're following doctrine, in, in some cases from the far right, where they they don't organize so that they can move in and out. They don't communicate. In some cases, they will act on their own. And that's part of the strategy of the far right and the far left for those that wanna uh, be violent.
2: Keith, any comments on that?
3: Yeah, so you know, I pride
1: myself on being an all-source intelligence officer who has sort of fallen into this geospatial intelligence niche, but I'm gonna tread lightly here in Chris's uh, defined area of expertise. Um, But just just to say that uh, there are all the things I've talked about during some of my initial exemplars of surveillance of protesters and, uh, you know, uh, tracking uh, apps and, you know, thinking then extrapolating to contact tracing and quarantine, uh, you know, how have people been paying attention to quarantine? we're in a very interesting time where these uh, technologies are kind of transcending both uh, things like retail and marketing and law enforcement and intelligence. The American people have traditionally had tremendous um, protections against their own intelligence system being used against them. And you know, that was revisited after some abuses and, and then strengthened uh, during, during our history. Uh, but we really have to understand now both the opportunities and the concerns we might have about how these things are used, right? If if they are used to be able to quell uh, violence and to hold people accountable who are not part of peaceful protesting but are there as agitators, who are parts of these things that Chris has, has defined, well, I think many of us could feel pretty um, pretty positive that that's a that, that's an that's an excellent application of those technologies. Uh, when it goes beyond that. Uh, is when, it, obviously, it starts to get disconcerting, and when does it cross over into something that uh, is infringing upon our rights. So uh, it's, it's uh, interesting interesting times.
2: Yeah, one more, um, just a separate question about Antifa. Someone said Breitbart had um, posted an exposé saying that they were getting operational training from abroad on tradecraft to have, Have you seen anything on that that you thought was
3: worth mentioning so i've actually made a few phone calls to folks that are plugged in obviously and i want to be responsible i would just argue that as of the time i called uh, some of my former colleagues across the government there was no linkage direct linkage to overseas entities, but that is increasingly changing because of the internet, right? So Mm -hmm. that poses some challenges. But again, if there is a nexus to foreign intelligence services, services that are fomenting and helping to train Antifa, as in the case of, russian imperial movement where they have training camps and they're linked to white supremacists in the united states that will change the dynamic so the intelligence community has to tread somewhat carefully but they have to investigate to make sure there are no foreign ties and i can't stress enough that would be for antifa that would be for far-right extremist groups and with Mm -hmm. russian imperial movement i can say that i'm confident that if the intelligence community finds that nexus, then ultimately it's up to policymakers to decide what happens next, or diplomats, right? It's not all about kinetic attacking terrorist camps. It'll start with diplomacy, it will start with sanctions. So these are important questions and they're excellent questions from the audience.
2: Um, so this is goes in the category of, of Stump, the Q&A moderator. Um, and if I were off camera I'd google this to find out and but was Gorgon Gorgon Stare activated in U.S. during protests?
1: Yeah so let me let me uh, describe what it is so I'll be I'll be your Google here Amanda it would be irresponsible of you to do that right now while you're trying to moderate. Um, uh, It was was really a, a, a phenomenal Capability that was developed uh, when we needed to understand what we referred to as pattern of life uh, in, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Horn of Africa. Being able to understand what activity around a village, around an area looked like, so that then, in fact, we'd be able to understand when there was a change, right? When there was a delta to that activity. Gorgon Stare uh, was an ambitious uh, project. Uh, I think there was probably some DARPA play in in that, but it allowed for a very wide area surveillance uh, from an aircraft or even an aerostat, uh, but also with the ability to have a a very high resolution HD um, spots throughout that wide area that could be identified. So you could have a broad area at fairly good resolution, but then multiple spots that could be steered within that to get extremely high uh, resolution, right, that would not be the type that's available. Uh, from space. Uh, so I am not aware that it's been deployed uh, by law enforcement agencies or anywhere in the United States. Um, it, it, it's a pretty complicated system uh, that, that requires, you know, backend analytics and the ability uh, for people to manage that. Uh, but so uh, I, I, there you go. I can tell you what it is, because uh, it's certainly not classified. Uh, but I'm, I'm certainly not aware of whether it's been deployed domestically.
3: If, if I can also jump in just because sometimes it's fun to talk about old school tradecraft in the realm of human intelligence. So old school is going into a village, maybe to spot, develop, and ultimately recruit a source in a village in Afghanistan, or a village in Iraq. If you don't have tools that I'm not familiar with, then old school, you go into the village and you're wondering if the past few days that you've been there when you're waving at folks and, and and trying to establish a modicum of rapport. If they don't wave one day, or if there are no children to give candy to, these are indicators that there might be some attack planning. This this builds up over time, but before you had the technologies, it was all about getting out into the villages and doing human sensing, talking to people. And uh, are they smiling? Are they offering you some tea? So that's how we negotiated through you know, uh, basic anti-terrorism measures, defensive measures, counter ambush by fundamentally understanding the operating environment. It is hugely helpful though to have predators providing you oversight and uh, top cover and other capabilities that the United States has to include SIGINT um, looking for um, some kind of anomalies in the signals intelligence environment so it's it's fun to reflect on how things have changed.
2: Well, here's another old old school uh, one. Uh, Germany has accused Russia of an assassination in a Berlin park. Legal sanctions seem ineffective. Has the West just given up on um, dealing with these uh, wet jobs as as we call them?
3: So there's a a unit, I forget the number designation, it doesn't matter, it's not relevant, but last year...
2: 007, License to Kill?
3: (laughs) No, I think they were were very OPSEC savvy and decided that wouldn't work out well for them. But some number sequence of an organization that does two things, three things really, cyber attacks, as well as active disinformation. And under the rubric of active measures, like the Soviet Union used to do, the Russians have continued to conduct assassinations, which again, as everyone knows, Oleg Kalugin, one of our board members, talks about it. I have spoken about it. We've done programs on it. Assassinations hasn't gone away. Um, And I think that the the question is excellent and it might uh, relate directly to a Chechen. So you have a Chechen in Germany, Germany. That was a target of the Russians. They decided to go after that Chechen. He was one of their targets, and they assassinated him. But also that same numbered unit, I believe, has also been complicit in maybe poisoning somebody in Bulgaria, I believe. The bottom line is Uh, Russia is extremely aggressive on the front of going after dissidents, and they're not the only ones, obviously. We've talked today about uh, the Mubahiv, they're internally focused in Saudi Arabia. Who from the Saudi regime would have been involved with uh, killing Khashoggi? Was that a special operation? But it was an assass- assassination nonetheless, silencing a political dissident. So yes, uh, you know this harkens back to a Cold War playbook, but it's even broader than it was historically. It's not just Russia anymore, it's other countries that are operating in particular in, in europe but sanctions are being used and i can't really speak to what kind of covert action measures from some of the countries that are aggrieved i know that germany is very concerned i know that uh i believe it was the netherlands or france was very concerned so um i'll just i'll just pause there um
2: um also question also, my sound got a little weird Um, wondering your thoughts on the recent uh, bombing of the liaison building by North Korea the peace liaison building and I that would be interesting to hear from the the viewing the geospatial viewing and the and then the impact what what do we think here
1: yeah I mean I'll I'll take I'll take a shot at that Uh, I am reminded uh, when we talked when Chris talked about uh, you know numbering units Uh, that the the Soviets were quite rigid in that, and it made, again, our intelligence jobs a little bit easier uh, because uh, there were just things that they rigidly adhered to, and in fact, it really used to bother them, and it bothers the Russians a little bit now that we turn out volumes and volumes of doctrine, uh, but we don't follow it, Uh, and then they can't, it's, it's difficult culturally for them to understand why we don't, but one thing we did used to do was we would purposefully misnumber some of our units uh, so that they wouldn't be able to understand, it would drive them crazy that we'd uh, we'd maybe you know uh, you know number something one two three you know six and nine, uh, and then they would spend a great deal of time trying to find those ones they thought they were missing. In any event, uh, with respect to North Korea, that was very public. Uh, that that was uh, pu- public diplomacy of blowing up that that facility. Uh, it made a statement. It's uh, it's how they operate. So there was no confusion about that. There was no requirement to. Uh, uh, To to, to have to figure it out uh, using classified methods. Uh, They wanted us to see it. We saw it. They made sure. Uh, And and it it was a statement about their displeasure uh, with the the current government in South Korea and some of the things that they're doing. And probably a little message and a little attention grabbing for us.
3: Uh, Keith did a great job on that.
2: Um, What are your thoughts on using the contact tracing apps um, as they've done in other countries regarding, of course, the virus?
1: So I think Apple and Google have uh, sort of taken the lead on this and have pledged to put in a number of protections uh, that, in fact, you would be alerted that you had come close to somebody who ultimately had been identified, but that that information would not be loaded up uh, to to the cloud, it would not uh, go beyond your device, and it would enable you with knowledge, uh, but it wouldn't, but but it, it wouldn't put you at risk. Uh, you know, cl- clear, clearly, clearly, I've, I've touched on some of this. We're in we're in a, we're in a, a tough time uh, where the devices that we're all using are, are leaving a trail. Uh, it's very clear, very easy to track uh, commercially. Uh, you have far more to worry about uh, about uh, people collecting your information for retail and marketing and insurance purposes, uh, because there is no protection against that versus the fact that the United States government, uh, the intelligence community, uh, cannot collect that about you. So look, contact tracing apps, uh, uh, things that are going to show adherence to quarantine, all very, very important as we face the threat of of COVID-19, but we have to understand, as as with anything, there's going to be trade-offs. So I I, I am pleased with what I've seen of this Apple, uh, Google uh, app so far.
2: Cool. Um, I think we have time for, gosh, one final question, and I feel terrible because we have a ton of great ones, but I think we've got to go back and get both of your perspectives, because this changes week by week, on the upcoming election and interference, because I want to hear, I think Keith's perspective would be interesting on that. So let's close it out with any thoughts on foreign interference in our election process
1: yeah look um, we've we the United States of America have been interfering in elections uh, certainly as long as I've been on this earth uh, and it's part of the toolkit of diplomacy and intelligence uh, and and that's 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 just the way it is and and, and how you define interference it could be something, Uh, as small as just supporting a candidate and providing them monetary support or uh, some sort of informational uh, uh, propaganda support, or it can get much, much more nefarious. And then the cyber age, obviously, we we saw in the last election cycle uh, how damaging it is. Uh, You know, I, I, I spent 12 years cultivating a great following and engagement on Twitter, and I think you may have seen, Amanda, I recently just sort of dropped off uh, because it was revealed, for instance, that 50% of the tweets uh, about uh, demanding unlocking the United States uh, were from foreign bots, uh, and that is a problem that's that's really largely uh, something that could be dealt with if there was the will to do it. Uh, humans aren't tweeting 100 times a second. Humans aren't tweeting from 10 different countries in in in, in one minute either. So not too hard to figure out that, that that's not a human. Uh, so yep. Yep, they're going to come after us again. Uh, yes, it's a problem. And yes, we have to be mindful of it.
3: So I know we only have a minute left. I feel like I've been beating this drum for some time. But I just want to underscore and footstomp again that disinformation was practiced throughout the Cold War and before by the Soviet Union. The Russians are very adept. The Iranians are less adept, but they will continue to... to uh, do state-sponsored disinformation operations, but we're extremely vulnerable right now because we have a polarized society and the disinformation campaign uh, that started in advance of the 2016 election is all about undermining confidence in the US government. It started before 2016, it's gonna continue through November. And if you think where we are as a nation, understand that Russia unfortunately is going to continue to sow discord it's even been determined that they are causing discord and trying to take advantage and it shouldn't be a surprise of the problems in the questions of race and they will exploit that as well and uh, the administration has called that out before george floyd was killed so this is going to continue through november Um, And I would just urge everyone to pay attention to their sources of information, go to multiple sources, be your own intelligence officer, Uh, don't react to that text message that says a group of violent uh, looters are coming into your neighborhood, they're moving and you start tweeting that off. In some cases, that is active disinformation. I could give countless examples just in the last month but uh, just it's serious but i think the american public are intelligent people so they will they will sort through um sort through the news as we get up to the election and they'll make the right decisions
2: well i want to thank you both for answering all manner of questions and we will share with you the questions that you didn't get so you can Um, If you are willing, um, answer those via email. I want to thank everyone for joining us today for this conversation. Um, Can't thank our sponsors, EKS Group, enough um we really appreciate your support and um next week at this time we'll have something completely different we'll have our curator's corner um with vince houghton and we'll be talking to a variety of spy fiction writers people with really interesting backgrounds um uh the the luminary among that group is brad thor and he is a huge bestseller with the scott, scott Horvath series, like 19 of these novels. So if you wanna taste, and they'll talk about how reality influences their plots, but I wanna thank these great people for telling us just about reality and trying to um, disabuse us of some of the fictions. Thank you both so much for being here.
3: Thanks so much, Amanda.
2: Thank
1: Thank you, Keith. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.